0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can
1: be weaponized
0: to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Hey, Jared, how you doing? Good, Drew, good. I'm
0: looking forward to this special episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I guess, you know, uh, people will be interested to hear what we have to say. Me and Lisa, Sharon Harper, had a little conversation Uh, But we can talk about that in one second because, you know, we've got our own stuff coming up on Inverse. You want to say a little bit about what's coming up?
0: Yeah, we've got a few things. So as well as Liberating Sunday School, which continues to weekly uh, lift up incredible Indigenous leaders from around the world, bringing teachings um, on the Book of Acts as we work our way through Willie James Jennings' um, commentary on Acts, we have a new subversive seminary starting um, after an incredible time uh, with Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, we're about to start a new text. Drew, did you want to tell people what our next text is and how people can get involved?
1: Yeah, the next text is called Knowing Christ Crucified, and it is by the Catholic womanist theologian M. Sean Copeland, and we're just really excited about getting into her work, um, and so we're going to begin uh, if you're uh, east Eastern time in the United States, February 2nd, but if you're in west australia or east africa it'll be february 3rd and so we're really excited about getting started and so if you're looking to jump in you're going to need to right now get a copy whether it be your local bookstore hopefully if you're able to get it without paying jeff bezos then then do that but if you have to pay him i guess that's the only way you do what you got to do get your kindle version Um, but we are going to be beginning very soon and so we're looking forward and you can just just as easily just hop on either um, Jared's Instagram or my page. Um, and we have a, um, a chat where you can just type in and let us know that you're interested. We give you instructions on what to do and we'll get you the information to get into the group. Anything else they need to know?
0: Uh, just that um, for those who aren't aware of womanism, um, uh, Alice Walker's famous quote that womanism is to feminism, what purple is to lavender, that, um, yeah. that this is the, the tradition of um uh, african-american uh re- reflection on women's experience and so th- if that is a new world to you this will be a wonderful introduction and i'm very excited to um it, like the subtitle of the book is the witness of african-american religious experience but to do that through the lens of somebody who is a contemplative and brings that reality to um how she thinks through um, theology, and a Catholic, which um, is hugely important for people uh, as they bring different voices. So all of that, um, it's going to be a time.
1: It's going to be really, really good. I think everyone, they have no idea what they're in for, but it's going to be really good. Um, Speaking of really good, um, you know, we just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. um, And so I don't know about your social media feed, but mine was just like nonstop. Everyone's quoting King you know, and a lot of them are just fluffy, random, out of context, you know, quotes. But um, but every now and then, you know, seemed like a few folks had a sense of king, the actual person, his maturity, and especially late king, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, texts, I mean, I think me and you both have an affinity towards like, you know, beyond Vietnam, which was mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, drafted by our our mentor and friends, um, Vincent Harding, but so many other writings. um, And so one of them is uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community by Dr. King. Again, late King, um, wrestling with a different set of issues. I'm curious if you were to think of a particular like passage. I mean, I know you I've heard you talk about your love for this book in particular, is there something that you'd want to share as like a little teaser for like what people can find in this book?
0: Oh, Drew, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. And um, much like we do with Jesus and we, we make him safe and um, uh, we we coddle and we, uh, how does Cornel West put it? Um, It's, it's the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King. That's right. Um, But we deodorize and um, uh, uh, make safe, Jesus, so people do with kings. So, I mean, Chaos, a community, um, which is the original title of Where Do We Go From Here? And it, I, I have in my hot little hands
1: uh, oh, a first edition the yep.
0: of, of the book. Um, in this first edition, it's page 90, which I think is a really um, great framing of um, the King we're actually dealing with, um, the, the King that was on the um, FBI's most watch list, um, the, the king who was written off and whose popularity was less than Trump is at the moment, um, like, put that in context, which is incredible, uh, because of the way that he was challenging um, uh, capitalism, white supremacy and militarism. And uh, he, here's a little quote from some of my uh, uh, favourite passages. Um, this is a pressing challenging challenge confronting the white liberal. When evil people plot, good people must plan. When evil people burn and bomb, good people must build and bind. When evil people conspire to preserve an unjust status quo, good people must unite to bring the birth of a society undergirded by justice. Nothing can be more detrimental to the health of America, or we could say any other civilization there at this time, than for liberals to sink into the state of apathy and indifference. The white liberal must see, that the black person needs not only love, but justice. It is not enough to say we love black people. We have many black friends. They must demand justice for black people. Love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. It is merely a sentimental affection, little more than what one has for a pet. Love at its best is justice concretized. Love is unconditional.
1: So good. That's so good. Now- what I want to know is how did Dr. King, like how was he reading my Facebook page, seeing all the nonsense that people are bringing to my page? Like, he, <laughs> like he's calling people out, right? Um, yeah. There's just so much of the, just so much of what we see, even still today, he was talking about um, at that moment. And so just so timely. It's just so timely. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I found myself thinking about that, Drew. Um, last night, Kat and I watched um, One Night in Miami,
1: Oh, I haven't seen um, it yet. Yes. Yeah. I still got to see that. Yep, yeah, it's, it's, on my it's, list.
0: Really, it's interesting. It, um, it feels like you're watching a play and right. I found out afterwards, um, reading a review up, uh, cause I didn't want any spoilers that it was initially, it was a play. play right, as a right. play. Yeah. And, um, I found myself thinking, um, uh, what brother Martin might've brought to that room, um, where you find, uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, um, sam cook and uh and a a sports figure that i wasn't familiar with um uh uh, uh, american football isn't very big in australia but uh the the combination of them together i found myself thinking um how do those different voices um bounce off each other and how would they hear um the the king uh not just of um 63 in dc um but of um 67 Um, at Riverside Church in NYC and all all that that means for our world today so um, I'm looking forward to this conversation with you I haven't heard it yet you and Lisa um, Lisa's a dear friend we we love her dearly she actually preached a homily at Kat and I's uh, wedding and um, to hear you both in conversation uh, about King um, I'm really looking forward to when I honestly just feel um, so much talk of king ar- around the celebration uh, of his birthday is just so much naff. So to, to hear some king of history um, r- rather than the king turned into a hood ornament for empire, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys can listen in. We we just explored chapter one um, as he's kind of just thinking about this new phase that we're entering into as he's thinking about just the shallow commitments towards justice and equality that so much of white America had at that time, as he's thinking about um, debates around what progress has been made and the different ways that it has played out in the North and the South, right? He's having all these conversations, thinking about the black uh, the black power movements in conversation mm-hmm. with nonviolence, all of that, right? Just so timely. Um, and so I hope you guys all can enjoy the conversation and uh, continue to read on. And if you want to connect with Freedom Road um, as they continue, Um, This study, um, you can connect, go find them at freedomroad.us and you can continue the book study with them. Enjoy.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm totally excited to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us today for the launch of our um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day National Book Study launch on Facebook Live and on Zoom. Um, So I am here today with Dr. Drew Hart who is a scholar focused on faith, race, and justice. And I'm so excited. This is the book, y'all. So if you haven't gotten the book, make sure you get this because this book, oh my gosh. So much. Drew, isn't that amazing?
1: It's so good, so good, so (laughs) timely.
2: It was written in 1967, just months before he was taken out of this world by assassination. And I know, we now know why He was assassinated, I almost said why homeboy, but he's much more than homeboy (laughs) was assassinated. Because he had thoughts, he had written down these thoughts, and he was already working toward them um, through the the sanitation workers uh, march through the poor people's campaign, but he was beginning to make a shift, a shift from civil rights to economic and social rights, and that is something that America just can't stand. The reason why we are where we are right now is because we never dealt with the question of full human rights for people who are not white men, cisgendered, Christian, straight, you know, basically they're the only ones who have full human rights, the ability to thrive, the ability to flourish in our nation or whose rights are fully protected. And so because of that, um, when we got Trump as our president, uh, you know, that was like a, a heyday for folks who who really just want that. Um, and now with the threat of the end of that presidency in just two days, um, white men just lost their minds. They lost their minds. That's right. That's Lost their minds. And Dr. King talks about this in this book. So we are going to be going through this for the next six weeks with various guests. Um, I'm so excited for our guests. We have um dr drew hart will be with us today and also um later on in february um we have reverend dr otis moth III will be with us um i believe it's february uh 8th is the day that he chose i'm so excited for that that's going to be a really powerful conversation um latasha morrison will be with us and also reverend uh, bishop william barber will be with us um and so i just want you to come come back. Each time you're gonna get wisdom and make sure you get your book. And I actually recommend this version of the book because it's a legacy version. In other words, it's one where the proceeds go to the King Legacy and, and the King Center and things like that helping helping the King Legacy to go forward. So today is MLK Day. It is also the day of our launch. And today's conversation is being broadcast live from, from uh, freedomroad.us. Facebook page. Um, We also have the Zoom webinar audience for those who are registered for the session for all six weeks. The recording will be available on Facebook Live directly following the conversation, so anybody can see this recording. Um, Folks who are registered um, but weren't able to make the time will have the recording link sent to them. And starting next week, we'll be moving from Facebook. Um, and Zoom to our webinar platform, which is called Webinar Jam. And it's just a little bit more you know, flashy with webinar stuff, right? So, um, and, and it's also just, it's a really great forum for us to have more intimate conversations with our people. Um, so content will be available to registrants through the live webinars and the recordings, which will be going up on our website under the Institute, on the Institute page each week. For those interested in moving forward with this conversation, the link is, the link to register for the remaining five weeks is, I mean, is in uh, the chat or will be going into the chat and directly following the, um, the program today. We'll also place that link in the body of the post on Facebook so that you'll have it. So I've already introduced Dr. Hart to you. Um, and I'll just say that the reason why we're doing this study is because last week, actually it was maybe two weeks ago, I picked up, I was, I was doing research for my own book, for my next book, which I've been talking about forever. And I'm almost finished, you guys. I'm almost done. It's called Fortune. It traces 10 generations of my family story and asks the question, how race broke the world and my family and how we can repair it all. Um, and I was doing research and I found a reference to this book in the research. So I got it and I started reading it. And I read one passage that literally blew my mind. It jumped out at me. We will be getting to that later. But in the meantime, let's actually just jump into the conversation, shall we? All right. So we've we've spent enough time doing this setup. So Dr. Hart or Drew, which would you prefer?
1: Drew is great.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much, Drew. Okay. So Drew, um, this is going to be kind of informal. In other words, I have the book. I have questions I have for you. If you have things you want to talk about, I want you to just say, hey, look, I want to talk about this thing right here. Yeah. I want to first just ask, what was your overall impression reading up just, you know, introduction through chapter one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my overall, I, I always feel like I just love late King, right? I mean, there's just so much other attention and I, I just love, um, and I think one of the things that it got me thinking as I was rereading it this time for our conversation was just, how important, like self-reflection and looking back Mm. and critical thinking about one's own, what we've been doing, what we've accomplished. Like the need for that kind of work is just so crucial. And I think that it's reminding me that we've got to be doing a little bit more of that, right? Just easy to just keep going and doing what you got going on. It's a whole nother thing to do an assessment of where you've been and where you're going. And so for him, it's, you know, Selma is this turning point, right? For him after that. Um, And hearing him reflect and seeing that, I mean, like you can see he's making shifts, he's making changes, he's realizing that what they've done before is not going to be good enough for what needs to happen, given their current moment. So anyway, that's just my initial takeaway is just literally what he's doing right in this moment. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, and it really strikes me that I mean. We we do we we have done so much. Just we've really had a modern yeah. day civil rights movement. Absolutely. in the two thousands, right? I think it really kicked off in two thousand thirteen, um, with the with the murder of Trayvon Martin, and then the acquittal of his of his murderer, um, and the the hashtag Black Lives Matter went out there, but didn't really catch on. And then in two thousand fourteen, woo, right? Like mm-hmm. we had the river of hashtag lives that came out. And and um, and then Mike Brown and um, and Jonathan Crawford and Ezel Ford and 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 and, and, and right, Samir Yeah, it just I goes mean, on really. and on. Yeah. And then you had people take to the streets. And so you, we've had multiple pushes, just like in the civil rights movement. That's you know, right. they had the Birmingham campaign. They had the Selma campaign. They had the Montgomery campaign. They had an Atlanta campaign. And all of these different places, you had movement. And, and and together, they make up the movement. Well, you could say that that was absolutely the case for us right now. But what we do not have, well, maybe we have some but we need more of just like you were saying we often hear the the giants of the movement who are still living today reflect back on the movement 50 years later and if we are studied enough we might actually know some of their books that they wrote back then but the thing that blew me away about this book is that this is dr king's immediate reflections
1: yeah. he's doing midstream he's in the midst of it
2: he is yeah. in the middle of he is reflecting on Selma two years after Selma. That's right. And telling us what happened after. And we don't ever hear that. We never hear about what happened the year after Selma. The we never after. hear that. That's right. Okay. So so I, so I here's my first thought. So I'm turning to page two. Okay. So on page two, I have my first wow. Okay. So page two, second paragraph um, and second, I'm just going to read second, third and fourth Paragraph here. It says one year later, some of the people who had been, they're talking about one year later after the passage of Voting Rights Act in 1965. Some of the people who had been brutalized in Selma and who were present at the Capitol ceremonies were leading marches in the suburbs of Chicago amid a rain of rocks and bottles among burning automobiles. To the thunder of jeering thousands, many of them waving Nazi flags. That's right. That's what I, I said. Wow, that sounds a little
1: familiar. And by the way, I always show that Chicago footage to my students in the classroom because they know they know all about the Southern stories and they That's don't right. know. And I always ask them afterwards, because they're shocked that they didn't know. I say, why do you think you're not taught this? Why are you not? the footage is there? You have Dr. King saying that this is just as scarier mm-hmm. than anything he'd seen in like Alabama and Mississippi. <laughs> and yet it's not a part of their public education, why? So I make them think through that, yeah.
2: Oh my God, like you just, okay, that's right. Let that sit, people. Why do you think you are not taught this? That's good. A year later, the same, well, that same year, one year after the Voting Rights Act, some of the Negro, and I'm gonna institute. I'm gonna substitute black because that just feels better right now. Right, right, right. Um, Some of the black leaders, who had been present in selma and at the capitol ceremonies no longer held office in their organizations That's right. um aka john lewis right? right so right they had been discarded to symbolize a radical change of tactics right. and what he's talking about there is snick and he talked he goes into right. that later with the adoption or the the election of stokely carmichael to the leadership right. um a year later That same year, 1966, a white backlash. Somebody say white backlash. White
1: backlash. Mm. White
2: backlash had become an emotional electoral issue in California. Okay, now this is so, because we're going to get more into this. Maryland and elsewhere. In several southern states, men long regarded as political clowns had become governors or only narrowly missed election. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Okay, watch and watch this. Watch what he says. Okay. Their magic achieved with a brew of bigotry, prejudice, half truths, and whole lies. Hmm. Y'all, it's a formula.
1: It's a formula. And it's important what he gets. I mean, because I think it's easy in our moment to be like, oh, there's something unique happening here. And he's helping us see, no, this is just what happens. And it has been going on for a very long time. That's in right. fact, he's recognizing that what he's seeing in that moment isn't the first time either, right? This is this is old. And, and so we've got to be attuned to the fact of what has come before and recognize how to respond in light of that. So it's, it's really important that we recognize that, yeah.
2: Okay, so that was my first big wow, what's yours?
1: Yeah, let's see. Uh, first big wow, um, along with the reflection, um, let me think. I, I think that maybe some of it is how he diagnoses white America. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, he gets really hard mm-hmm. on the idea that uh, they have a very shallow and empty commitment to justice and equality. Not that those things are absent, right? For most Americans, he says but it's shallow, it's loose, I think is actually the language he uses, right? It's a loose definition of equality in there. Um, and then along with that, and it actually kind of reminded me of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer a little bit, his language around um, cheap grace, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheap justice and cheap equality is what basically King is getting at. And he um, actually calls
2: it that at one point. He calls yeah. it that, I don't yeah. remember- No,
1: that. he does it multiple times, yeah. He actually mm-hmm. literally uses that language. Um, and I think that that he's getting at, for me, it's, because I, I, I'm thinking about like over the summer, the response that so many folks had to Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery, to Breonna Taylor, to George Floyd. Yes. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the anti-racist books were, you know, all Woo! flying off the shelves and stuff. And I'm glad to see all that. Um, but, but I always am concerned when things just seem to be, like people want ideas in their heads. Um, but not necessarily a commitment that's going to require any personal costs and any social costs. Right. Okay. And yeah. I think that that for me is pretty significant to name the way he names it. I think is really important um, for our, our moment today.
2: He does, doesn't he? So I am going to just go through a couple of different places that actually get us directly to what you just mentioned. I'm yeah. um, in the book. So one of the things that he says that kind of blew another thing that blew my mind is, um, on the same page actually on page 2 we going to say on page 2 so on page 2 bottom of the page during the year that same year in several northern and western cities most tragically in watts young blacks had exploded in violence right yep. so oh i'm sorry uh oh i'm sorry so well that's the, the watts riots which happened august um august 1965 and so I'm sorry, I, I actually meant to mention something else here. So the bottom line, what I'm getting at here is that there was there was an appeasement that happened from the north and what he gets at many, many times is that the north tends to work with compromise with the south to appease it so that it doesn't explode That's and right always oh this is what i was getting at that black people are the sacrificial lamb on the altar of those compromises that's right
1: that's right not
2: now it's not just black folk it's people of color it's women yep it's it's trans it's lgbtq it's everybody who's not white male cisgendered straight christian man
1: yeah that's right yeah and that's i mean so i remember the very first time i learned about How Reconstruction ended, and Mm -hmm. learning about white Northerners basically doing that same thing, right? Yes. Um, Reconciling with white Southerners so that they could keep the peace, right? At the expense of Black people. Oh, yeah, I guess we'll have to allow um, all kinds of white terrorism to be unleashed on Black people's lives, but we're willing to do that for the sake of white peace across the nation. And so that's some of the same patterns, again, that we're seeing in our present time. And yeah, I I just think that we have to watch. It's scary sometimes when even folks, and I'll say white folks in particular, who in some way or form say they're committed to equality and justice, and yet still um, they're willing to sacrifice us at the expense of keeping the peace, so to speak. right? Um, And that's dangerous. That's always been harmful. Uh, Sometimes disruption and tension are much healthier things than keeping the peace.
2: And they always, especially in the church, don't they use unity?
1: Unity. Oh, but everybody you loves are,
2: you. you're disrupting Christian unity right, right. by protesting, by raising these issues of race. You're you are you're you're compromising unity. Right, right. Now somebody asked me about that once. I think it was on a podcast, maybe a couple of months ago, and I said, you know, who do we need to be unified with?
1: Right. That's the question. What are we unifying around? We got to clarify that. Yes. Um, If we're not unifying around justice and equality and centering those who are most vulnerable, those who suffer most in our society, then something's wrong.
2: Yes. Okay, so he asked the question on page three. So we're now at page three, Um, (laughs) y'all. Why was widespread sympathy with the Negro, the black person revolution? Um, with the with the black revolution abruptly submerged in indifference in some quarters or banished by outright hostility in others why was there ideological disarray so that feels like i just feel like this is exactly what's happening you know okay so there's another place um this is my 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 third wow okay so page four um he says all right i'm gonna go back a little bit he says the outraged white citizen had been sincere when he snatched the whips from the Southern sheriffs and forbade them more cruelties. But when this was to a degree accomplished, the emotions that had momentarily inflamed him melted away. White Americans left the Negro. All right, I gotta say it because just, just, he says it a lot. So there yeah, you go. Yep. On the ground. And in devastating numbers, walked off with the aggressor. Hmm. Do you hear it? Did you hear what he just said? We were sitting there whipped on the ground. Hmm. They stopped the whip. And then they, you know, went off with the aggressor and had coffee.
1: Right. And it makes me, I don't know if it's intended or not, but when he's saying that, it has the Samaritan story in my mind, almost like he's invoking that in the backgrounds. Yeah. That's
2: good. That's good. That's good. And then he says... Um, Okay, it appeared that the white segregationist and the ordinary white citizen had more in common with Hmm. one another than either had with the Negro.
1: Yep.
2: All right. So I was thinking about this in relationship to George Floyd and what you were talking about, but you just said, I mean, you know, look, my book actually reached a level on Amazon it has not ever reached before. Right. Right? So and, I'm yep. like, hey, yep. people. I think we reading. all
1: experience that. They're
2: I in. do not disparage. Please <laughs> right. buy away the very good gospel, y'all. So right, and Drew Hart, Drew, what is your book's name?
1: So uh first one Trouble I've seen but then uh, who will be a witness is the second one, who, yeah. Who
2: will be a witness? Who will be a witness, right? So Trouble I've seen, who will be a witness, very good gospel. Buy the books. Get the books. Um we're not disparaging that. But folks bought those books. Folks clicked in and said, I'm following on Instagram. And that was all around George Floyd's death. And a lot of people showed up and voted. The question now, though, is with the threat of the white nationalists who are showing up at capitals, unhooding themselves in your churches, how much will you do to appease to strike compromises, to say, let's slow down, right? right? Let's slow down and try to bring them along while your, your brothers and sisters of color are laying on the ground, hmm. still laying That's on right. the ground. That's right. All right, so I wanna ask the audience actually, can you write in the chat So people who are are on Facebook and people who are listening to us here in the Zoom room, can you ask, I mean, I'd like to ask you the questions that Dr. King asks at the bottom of this page. He asks, why is equality so assiduously avoided? That's that's a deep question. Why does white America delude itself? Because we know people are deluded. I have people, because, because we are doing this study, I have had people for the first time write back to me on my email list saying, I am banning you. I am going to, I mean, you are wrong if you're saying that Trump is, has ever uttered a word of violence. And I didn't even <laughs> say that. I just said there was an attempted insurrection and they were like, that was Antifa, oh my gosh. So, so I, I, I wanna ask, I'm asking you now, Put it in the chat. Why does white America dilute itself? And Dr. King asks, how does it rationalize the evil that it retains? Hmm. How have you seen in your church, in your community, in your family, around the dinner table, how have you seen rationalizations of the evil? And he's saying that it's, it's actively retained through the compromises. All right, so how have you seen that? Dr. Hart, Drew, how have you seen that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I always, there's a few things I always turn people towards. One is the idea around how we talk about ignorance, that there's such things as willful ignorance, right? Not all ignorance is the same. Um, and Sometimes people choose to, to believe what they wanna believe. Now, I won't lie, like we're in an interesting moment today in terms of algorithms and all that stuff that make it even easier to just, you start down that path and then the path, is given to you, right? Yes. Um, so you can go deeper and deeper. And so I do recognize there's some challenges, but nonetheless, what he's describing is still at the at the heart the same thing, right? This choosing willful ignorance, choosing the lies, choosing the deception, and then on top of that, then telling another narrative that um, covers up the truth of what's actually happening, right? I mean, I think that at the heart of like why so many Americans are so stuck on talking about American exceptionalism is because it, it it blurs and covers over the truth of genocide and slavery and Jim Crow and all kinds of racial oppression that's going on in this land. And so I think those two things for me are really significant. But I do think, again, we're in a unique challenge where I think, especially in churches, they're going to have to think very hard about how do you disciple and form people oriented towards justice and freedom in a context where algorithms are powerful draws and deeply shaping people's imagination at levels unprecedented so far.
2: And maybe, honestly, maybe there needs to be a movement to push tech to rethink its algorithms. Absolutely. In a Absolutely. ethical way to actually have some kind of a, a, a bottom line, a, a third bottom line in the same way that we created for business back in the early 2000s, um, where, where you are judging a tech um, platform by its third bottom line, by its ethics, by the way that it brings us together versus tearing us apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a, I forget if it was Google or Facebook, but there was a, I think it was Google, right? There was a black woman who was fired, um, who her position was ethics and she was challenging. I think it was Google just a couple of weeks ago. Um, they let her go. And then there was a big stir and a lot of people in Google were defending her because she's talking about these very issues, right? How the ethics behind the algorithms actually have a huge implication and they're not neutral. People like to think that they're neutral but they're human beings creating the algorithms with their own biases. And so it has all kinds of problems behind it. So yeah, there's gonna be a lot of work to be done on that front. Um, Otherwise it'll be devastating for our society and our capacity to even have meaningful, truthful conversations.
2: That's good. And I actually see a lot of people writing in a chat. I see the overwhelming, um, the overwhelming uh, sense is white folks just don't want to give up their comfort. And these are white people speaking, like white people who are writing into the chat. One person, um, Kenny Nolan says, when you are used to privilege, equality feels like punishment. And that's, Hmm. it's like, whoa, I think Kenny, is that a quote out of the book? That sounds familiar. So another one, um, let's see. Another one is, um, idolatry of identity. Yeah. We are good people, says Tanya Beeler. Um, Lena Thompson says, "Oh hi, Lena Thompson." <laughs> um, she says, "Equality is avoided because theology of scarcity." Mm. Yeah. Ooh, that just that just hit me, because if you think that the world is a zero sum game, then you must dominate to get yours. If you believe that God is the author of all things and God is infinite and therefore we have infinite possibilities, then you do not need to dominate. You do not need to to hoard. You will be provided for. Um, Lena, I want to say that it's also along with your theology of scarcity, maybe the, the other side of that would be the development. And I've, I've been talking about this for a long time. And I feel like I'm now having to force myself to live it now that I bought a house, right? And when you buy a house, you kind of buy into that middle-class dream, right? I'm feeling, and I'm feeling the pool. I mean, I'm just gonna be real with you. I'm like, I want nice things, right? And so, but, but I, have and my mom, <laughs> my mom is all about the nice things and she's living with me, right? So, I, but I've had to say, we are going to have enough, not more than enough. Right. We're not going to have more than enough. So I think there's on the other side of, of needing to examine a theology of That's scarcity, there's right. the need to, to examine a theology of enough. That's right. Right. Okay. So, so Dr. King on page five, y'all were up to page five. So on page five, he says, white America reaffirms its bonds to the status quo. So some other people in the chat said um, it's, it's, um, comfort, not wanting to lose privilege. Well, this is what Dr. King says as well. Um, it had contemplated comfortably hugging the shoreline, but now fears that the winds of change of, are blowing it out to sea. So that made me think I'm like, well, what are people going to do when we start talking about reparation? That's right. I mean, what are people going to do when we start talking about restitution? When we start talking about the $1 trillion um, uh, price tag that in 1967.
1: 1967,
2: that's right. It's it's more now. That's right. But the $1 trillion price tag on page six, y'all, we're up to page six. um, uh, Paragraph two, the assistant director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, Hyman Bookbinder, love that name, in a frank statement on December 29th, 1966, declared that the long-range costs of adequate implementing programs to fight poverty, and the reason why we're focused on poverty here and not just, um, quote, inequality for Black people, is that at that time, about 50% of Black people were poor. More than 50%, actually, of Black people in America were living under the poverty line. So poverty and race were intricately married. Um, So... He says, in order to do this, in order to fight this, the ignorance and slums, we will, we will, we will need to reach a $1 trillion um, bill. He was not awed, Dr. Singh, Dr. King says, or dismayed by this prospect. This is a government worker. Like this is somebody who runs the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he wasn't dismayed by it. What he said was, but instead he pointed out that the growth of the gross national product during the same period makes this expenditure comfortably possible. Comfortably possible.
1: Comfortably possible. possible. That's right. That's right. And it's huge. I mean, if you think about, I've been, it's just so fascinating what happens when things impact the whole nation versus when they just impact certain groups, right? So in our moment today, they're talking about $1 trillion. Biden's got a whole $1.29 trillion. Right. They're, not a, they're not afraid of these numbers. They're not no. afraid of these numbers at all when it's impacting everyone, impacting themselves. Yes. Uh, but when there's been direct harm against Black people and there's the opportunity to rectify it, to make it right, all of a sudden, oh, we don't, where, where's the money going to come from? We don't have that kind of money. No, they always had the kind of money. We could have done it comfortably at any point and still could do it comfortably at any point and it will not fundamentally change uh, anybody's way of life, you know what I mean? It's just that a matter of exactly willpower. Is- yeah. And
2: in fact, Dr. King goes even further with, with this man's quote, he says, um, um, it is, he said, as simple as this. And I actually, so I, I didn't only underline this, I did a little squiggly so that I could really see it. <laughs> the poor can stop being poor
1: mm-hmm
2: rich are willing to become even richer a little slower
1: at a slower rate that's it
2: furthermore Mm. he says furthermore he predicted that unless a substantial sacrifice is made by the american people the nation can expect further deterioration of our cities increased antagonisms between races, and continued disorders in the streets. Now, are we not the evidence right now today? Are we not the evidence of what he just said? Because we did not choose that way. This was 1967 and the next president to be elected was Nixon who declared a war on drugs and actually made it a war against black people and a war to get back to poverty. Right. And so the poverty rate for black people skyrocketed again over his tenure and Gerald Ford's. And it leveled out with Carter, but then went right back up um, with it kind of yo-yos, right? Um, between Democrats and Republicans. The poverty rate goes up when Republicans are in office because they cut programs that actually help people from falling into poverty. Mm-hmm. And it goes down, but still never down to the point where it was um, in, in 1974, 1975, after 10 years of, uh, or yeah, about 10 years of, of the war on poverty. Um, so, all right. So here's my next piece. So this gets to, um, Drew, this gets to what you were talking about, about the economic stuff. Let's dive into that. Can we dive into that?
1: Yeah, we have to dive into that. Absolutely.
2: That's the point, right? Like this is, This is the thing, Dr. King is, sh- is shifting in his last year, last year, he's shifting from only looking at civil rights as in they're called negative rights. They're the right to exist basically, to economic rights. So what he says on, on page seven, y'all we're up to page seven, here we go. He says, and actually bottom of six to top of seven, when the constitution was written a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Remember that? That's called the three-fifths compromise, right? right? So today, this is today, 1967, another curious formula seems to declare Black people are 50% of a person. Now, where does he get that from? This is where he gets that from. Of the good things in life, Black folks are approximate, I mean, black folks have approximately one half that of what whites have. And of the bad things in life, black people have twice the amount of what white people have. That's right. So I did a little bit of research and I just, you know, to update this because that was back in that day. All right, y'all. So hold on. So do you know the median wealth gap? Do you know that? You know that figure? True.
1: I'm not sure if I know it off the top of my head. Okay, yeah. <laughs> sorry for the. That's alright.
2: Okay, so median wealth gap between black and white, and I and actually I used to and I have. I mean, up to last year, I was using a particular figure that I got back in 19. I'm sorry, 2016, but this has been updated now to 2000, uh, or actually, no, this this was done in 2016 and was updated in 2018. Right, so as of 2016 the wealth gap is as such the median white median white family has a wealth base gross of 171,000 dollars that means they have liquidatable expenses minus debt of uh, $171,000. That's the median, that's not right. the average, it's the right. median, I'm meaning the right. middle. This is what middle class looks like for white America. What do you think the median is or was in 2016, the year that, um, that America kind of elected Trump to be president? What do you think the median was then?
1: I would put a, about a 10th of that.
2: For black folk.
1: A 10th of that would be my guess.
2: You are literally light, right? Yeah. It was one tenth of that. It was it yeah. was seventeen thousand dollars It
1: always hovers around a tenth that's been staying there. Yeah.
2: So here we are not half. Right. We are not 50% of a of a human being. We are 10% of a human being. Yeah. Now. Now, um, now I went, did a little bit more research and I asked, okay, so what about weekly wages? Because you know, he talks about wages and income and weekly wages in 2018. So this is updated a couple more years still, but in the middle of the Trump presidency, median weekly wage for black folk. What do you think it was?
1: And And everybody else put it in the chat. What do you think the
2: median weekly wage was for black folk?
1: At that time, for him?
2: In 2018. Oh, in
1: 2018.
2: In 2018. Yeah, that I do Like the middle. Again, not the average, the middle. What do you think folks? Write it into the chat. What's the middle? What's the middle line for weekly wage? Weekly. So $10 an hour says Shoni Scott. Shoni, do that in terms of weekly. Like what would the weekly number? Like the weekly check somebody takes home, what'd that be? <laughs> Drew's doing the math. Okay, so Lisa Klein says 500. Rashawn says six, uh, 600. 600 350 a week says Angela Lofton, okay. Lisa 400 less than 4200 says Steve. So so less than $4200. Steve, that's a very good safe bet.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so in 2018, the median wage for black people was $694. For Hispanics, for Hispanic people, it was $680. So it was even lower. For white people, it was $916. This is the median. Now, if you were to take out women, it goes up because women get paid less than the men in every case. In every
1: category, right? In
2: every case, whether it's white, black, Latino, Asian, Native American, doesn't matter. Women are getting paid less. So if you're only counting black men or let's say for white men, it goes up from 9- 916 to $1,002. That's their median. For Black men, it goes up to $735 per week. And for Hispanic men, it goes up to $720 per week. But think about that. Like, that's not a whole lot. And most times, these are people with families, not just individuals. They're trying to support an entire family. So, so that's what the gap looks like. So I want to ask, what is your, I want to ask, what's the next wow that you saw in the text?
1: Yeah, well, I want to touch on, so with this idea that him focusing on economics, and you think about like what he ends up doing, like with the Beyond Vietnam War speech and stuff, how is my, he's connecting things, right? Yes. And and I think what is powerful for our moment is, so with the, his critique on Vietnam, is not just uh, anti-war position, but it's also that the money that's being spent for the war machine is is being deterred away from programs that could actually be eradicating poverty, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful for the conversation that's happening right now around policing the overspending and bloated budgets of policing, especially in our cities, the militarizing of of policing um, and how that can be deterred and turned towards things that actually help people, right? Mm -hmm. Housing, education, um, mental health, right? All the things that are actually the root of many of the problems that send people to prison in the first place. And so I think that that's so vital, that critique that he's making in general and for him to be uh, naming the economic problems and saying that, look, we haven't paid the, we, we've done no, it wasn't costly what we've done before, right? Yes. That there's gonna be some costly stuff, both in, individually, but also as a society that we have to invest in people and try to make repair for what has happened um, and how we spend our money actually does matter. And I think that that's uh, ac- extremely important for our conversation right now.
2: That's really good. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us forward because we only have, we, oh my God, yeah, this yeah. is like gone so fast, y'all. Yep. What, we need more time, we need more time. So um, first of all, I want to say, if you have questions, put them in the, in the Q&A section right now. Right now I see one, I want to see more. Let's have a few more, okay? But in the meantime, I want to jump forward to that section that um, that made me want to do this book study um, yeah. as, a, as a national thing, right? So, and I want to hear your thoughts on it, right? So I'm going to go ahead and just read it. I'm going to read the whole section. So. They're talking, Dr. King is talking about, and this is on page 11, he's talking about how, um, so I'll just read it. Even the Supreme Court, despite its original courage and integrity, curbed itself only a little over a year after the 1954 landmark cases, as in Brown versus the Board of Education, right, when it handed down its pupil placement decision, which is, They did it a year later, a little over a year later. It it made another decision that curbed Brown versus the Board of Education. And um, when it handed down the people placement decision, in effect, returning to the states, the power to determine the tempo of change. Mm. So this subsequent decision became the keystone in the structure that slowed school desegregation down to a crawl. So first question I just want us to be thinking about is, how can we be doing that here? What are the not not how can as and we want to, but how? What are the different tactics people can use to slow down progress policy wise? What are the different things they can do to slow it down? Okay, keep going. Um, this subsequent decision became the keystone. Oh, I already said that. Thus, America with segregationist obstruction and majority indifference. Silently nibbled away at a promise of true equality that had come before its time. These are the deepest causes for contemporary abrasions between the races. Loose and easy language about equality, resonant resolutions about brotherhood fall pleasantly on the ear, but for the Negro. Hello, somebody. There is a credibility gap she cannot overlook. She remembers that with each modest advance, the white population promptly raises the argument that the black person has come far enough. We were talking about this toward the beginning, right? Well, get this, each step forward accents an ever present tendency to backlash. And then we get to the good part. This characterization is necessarily general. It would be grossly unfair to omit recognition of a minority of whites who genuinely want authentic e- equality. And I know a lot of those white folk, I mean, they are with us. They're with us on the front lines. They're with us in the halls of Congress. They are, they themselves are organizing their people. That is real. Right. Uh, to be of European descent is not to be evil. There are people of European descent who have rejected the hierarchy that created the construct of whiteness itself. They have rejected their, their place their quote rightful place as the top of the hierarchy of human belonging. But Dr. King says their commitment is real, sincere, and ex- is expressed in a thousand deeds, but they are balanced at the other end of the poll by the unregenerate segregationists. And I want us to read their white nationalists, because that's how we would read that today. Yeah. Who have declared somebody that democracy, I'm on page 12 now, is not worth having if it involves equality.
1: Mm. That's right. Mm.
2: Isn't that amazing? Mm. And and then he goes on and he says, this segregationist goal, the segregationist goal is the total reversal of all reforms with re-establishment of naked oppression, and if need be, a native as an American form of fascism. Mm. So can we talk about that? Let's talk about that for a minute before we go to the other questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, that's just, that's our moment, right? I mean, that is our moment. That's exactly what has happened. That was uh, what brought Trump and Trumpism and mm-hmm. fascism and Christian nationalism into the public square in a way that it hasn't been for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you're just like, wow. You, you almost think he's writing for us and he's writing for, but, but it's just showing how things can repeat when you're not uh, staying attuned to uh, what's going on around us. So yeah, I think that's that's huge. That's so but vital for us to name that.
2: Drew, I mean, the thing that gets me about this reality that he's named is yeah. that it is nowhere is it more highly concentrated than in the White Evangelical Church. Church.
1: Yeah. That's right. From
2: which From which we came. Like yeah. you came out of the White Evangelical Church.
1: Well, black. not white. I I mean, black evangelical church. Um, but ah. so, so I grew up in a black evangelical church, and then have been more inga- ingrained into Anabaptist spaces more recently, and um, Black Baptist. But um, but certainly the proximity, right? Certainly through college and different things, has been That's there. So these are great. yeah, and so um, and I, I've seen. I mean, I can see the way that white evangelicalism has served as a refuge for racism or for Christian nationalism. I mean, these things are just, um, they, they're not that. easily tor- torn apart, right? I'm, I mean, half of what I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know why my books do so well? is because I, during college, got centered and got to see firsthand as an outsider, all that was going on, half of my stuff is just telling stories of of, but as an outsider describing is just descriptive of just, I mean, the one moment I, I described being on the dorm. I remember one time we're hanging on the dorm and all of a sudden people start chanting USA, USA, USA. And I'm thinking like out of nowhere, there was, it wasn't the Olympics. It wasn't, it was just out of nowhere. I'm thinking like, this could never happen among black people. Like we just don't do this, right? Like where's this coming from? It's like, it was like literally just like, and that's something it's so deeply ingrained and meshed mangled into Christianity. It's into their mainstream version of Christianity itself. Um, and it has diseased the tradition. I mean, I think uh, Jennings says it right. A diseased social imagination has been birthed out of it. Um, and everything it does then out of that vandalizes the name of Jesus. Everything. It's because it's none of it is untouched. Yeah.
2: That's deep. That's deep. Yes, Lisa, he called it fascism. Yes, he did. Yes. So Lisa, Lisa Keller said, or um, Kill, Kill Heifer said, he called it fascism. Wow. Yes, he did. Yep. Um, The thing that kind of blows my mind, a lot of things are blowing my mind today, but the thing that, well, another thing he kind of names on the next page, page 14, he says, the 10 year, now this was really interesting because what he did was he revealed part of the strategy, like the core of the strategy of the civil rights movement. He said the 10 year assault at the roots of fundamental, or sorry, at the roots of segregation was fundamental to undermining the system what distinguished this period from all preceding decades was that it constituted the first frontal attack. Mm. On the racism at its heart. Since before the civil war, the alliance of southern racism and northern reaction and that northern reaction he's talking about is the reaction to appease to compromise right Right. has been the major roadblock to all social advancement the cohesive political structure of the south working through this alliance enabled a minority of the population to imprint its ideology on the nation's laws that's right so yeah. here we go. We go right back to critical race theory. Hello, somebody, yep. somebody say yep. critical race theory. Critical
1: race theory, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's holding us hostage, right? And, and I think, I, that I always tell, I mean, I, it's not me that, I, I think I'm assuming it's historians that came up with the phrase, right? But that, because um, I think I've seen it mostly through historians where they say, you know, the South lost the war, but they won the, they won, lo, lost the physical war, but they won the cultural war, right? The, mm-hmm. the ideologies, worn out. I mean, that's the crazy thing. Their narrative, their version of things for a very long time was the dominant narrative that white northerners accepted. Mm-hmm. And that's why white evangelicalism, so many, what got them in trouble is in the compromising. They, they've they inherited the logics of Southern Christian evangelicalism also as a part of it because um, they wanted to get along so well, right? Um, and so it's just dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And, um, and we have to see the way that it It gridlocks everything that we do. Everything we can't, you know, people say we can't have nice things. We can't have nice things if we don't exercise that demon.
2: Ooh, that's good. That's good. Now, y'all, there's a few more pages left in this chapter, but we don't, we're running out of time. We have four minutes left and I want to make sure we get to these questions. And and actually, we have three questions in in the the Q&A part and two of them are more statements. (laughs) One of them is, yes, that struck me hard too. Yes, I'm Sharon Andrews. Yes, I'm glad. Thank you for that. Roshunda um, Whidbey says, will you provide weekly action steps that we can take? And the answer is yes. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, we're going to offer a reflection question for you to reflect on, or a couple of them actually, um, uh, for you to reflect on between now and next week. And also between now and next week, y'all got to read chapter two, because next week we're talking chapter two, which is Black Power. Hello, a somebody. And I'm actually going to be talking about that by myself on my own, because I, I my mom was a part of SNCC. She dated Stokely Carmichael. Hello. Who actually, um, you know, was the person who coined that term. He wasn't the first person to say it, but he was the first person to make it a national movement, a movement kind of a yeah. um, thing. So I want to talk a little bit about that and especially through a theological lens. Um, but yes, every week we're going to, we're going to be offering that Tim Coburn asks, I, a white male pastor, find myself making some concessions specifically with the terms I use in order to journey together amidst a church of differences. Okay, so Drew, this is, I'm going to put this question to you. It is tricky, but the desire to bring the people who need discipleship and racial justice the most white males tends to lead me to try to teach on racial justice in a way that doesn't provoke the backlash, but educates and disciples it. Would love some further thoughts and perspective on this. Mm. Just not sure how to determine the appropriate tempo of change in our context. We are in downtown Sacramento and have a lot of differences in our church and community. Tim, thank you. You literally asked the question. All right, Dr. Drew Hart, who actually does disciple and teach on this and figured out the tempo, um, talk to us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of this is going to, forced us to do some self-examination work around our own priorities and how we value different people in actuality in community. Because I think the temptation that we're all socialized into is to center white men in everything that we do, right? In our work, even when we're doing anti-racist work, the temptation, if we're not unconscious, will be centering white men and their lived experiences. But by doing that, you will, by, by definition, be putting other people more vulnerable um, in harm's way, in in the conversation, and I think as followers of Jesus, I think the teaching is pretty clear: the first are last, and the last are first. We we see Jesus centering um, those who are most vulnerable, centering the least last and lost in society, centering uh, the Samaritans, vulnerable women, the poor, right to those who are most stigmatized um, as the starting point. Not that there's not a space; there's a space for the centurion to come and to recognize and let go of his authority, right, and come in into that space, but not. Not to the exclusion of and marginalizing of other people. So I think that that's really the hard work that we don't want to get to the point where there's no place for folks to have repentance, but we can't be so focused on their repentance that we're willing to harm the very people that we say we're committed to, right? And so I think that affirming their dignity, their worth, their value has to be infleshed in our actual practice in community. I always say for inverse, I'll give a shout out again. Like we have a practice, we say. first or last and last or first, even in terms of speaking and who gets to speak when, right? And we invite Black women and women of color in in particular to start off in terms of when we get into our conversation time, right? And we actually tell white men that they're going to be our leading listeners, right? They'll get their moment, but they're going to be last in line as it relates to who enters into the conversation. How do we flesh this stuff out in real ways? Mm -hmm. And what is surprising is that a lot of people actually, even the white men, come to realize this is actually really meaningful, that this is liberative for them too, that this is not to harm them, that we care about everybody, um, but we also got to unscramble the hierarchies that we've been uh, socialized into.
2: You know, it's funny because we actually have an example of this in scripture, it's called Acts 6. Acts 6,
1: right? exactly.
2: Acts 6, that's exactly what Acts 6 was. Acts 6 was that moment of decentralization of the majority culture um, in, the, in the first church, and in, in literally the very first church. You had the the majority culture there were the Jews, the the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews, and the Hellenist Jews, the ones who had converted into Judaism were kind of on the outside, and they were getting short shifted right they were the ones who like in their daily worship. uh, appetite. They were they were starving. They weren't getting it. They weren't they weren't being fed. Literally, weren't being fed. Yeah. And so the Hellenistic um, brothers and sisters said, "Yo, my, y'all aren't feeding my mama." Like you know what I mean? Like come yep. on now. So what did they do? They shifted. They shifted the power and they centered the Hellenistic Jews. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Y'all get to actually now decide who gets fed when. Everybody, not just." You go feed your people, but you now head up food distribution for everybody. That's a shift of power. That's a moving from the margins to the center and, and a shifting of of from the center to the margins, quite honestly, to, to the circle, the larger circle for the, the Hebraic Jews who had run everything up to that moment. That's right. So that's, that's really great. Thank you so much for that. Okay. So. Oh, we have a few more questions in the chat, and we are a little bit over, but we actually got a little bit of a late Starting start. A little so late, we'll, right. we'll, we'll make up for that. How can we hold the new administration accountable? says Monica Taramani. We need progress, and now is the time. Overdue in all honesty, instead of looking to appease across the aisle. How can we hold the new administration accountable? Well, first of all. We can hold them accountable by making sure that we are continuing to raise our voices. We are raising our voices in Congress because Congress responds to their constituents. So you need to be writing to, tweeting to, and visiting your elected officials, whether they are your city officials on the city council, your town council, your school board, or whether it's your state and federal officials, your senator, your your local house member, not local, but your your, your state's house member, um, your district's house member, rather. And you can also um, uh, write to and tweet to President Joe Biden when he is sworn in. You can do that. And I'll tell you, they listen to that stuff. They actually do. So you need to be raising your voice on online. But don't just raise your voice. Talk to your people. Because the thing is, politics I love, Jim Wallace has a really great, great quote. And I I was, um, I worked with him for uh, six years. And so I learned this like the back of my hand, but it's true. There are three kinds of politicians. There's the kind of politician who is dead set against, it's the segregationist, who is dead set against movement or reform. And so no matter what, no matter how logical, you know, uh, your proposed policy is, they will oppose it. Right. Then there is the politician who puts his hand up to the wind and says, which way is the wind blowing today? And the wind is the polls. Which, which way are the poles blowing today? What do the, the polls tell me that the people want? And wherever the people want, they will go. That's called the movable middle. And then there are the politicians that are actually in office to do justice. They are there because they so deeply believe, they've already read this, they already know the way to go, or they have a very um, sharp sense of it. And so you don't need to push them They're there. You need to partner with them. Um, and, and you also need to, to um, support them in prayer um, and, and, and correct them when they go off track, you know, say, oh, but wait a minute, ethically, what you just said is actually not right. Right. So, so they're not God. Um, you need to center your faith. So, so. How do you hold this this administration accountable? We're not sure yet. We don't know yet whether this administration is going to be this kind of an administration or the kind that is in it to do justice. We don't know. Um, Biden is not one of the most progressive people in Congress. Oh, no, he's not. He's actually very moderate. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he was elected. Right. But this is our opportunity right now, this year. Literally this year is the opportunity for us to begin to push this administration to go beyond the status quo that Dr. King um, so rightly pointed at that white moderates want to keep and therefore keep their black and brown brothers and sisters on the ground. So how do you hold the administration accountable? You communicate with them through every means necessary. Shelby Clark asked the question, love the weekly action steps that will be coming. I also wonder if you might be willing to send the resources beyond Dr. King's book that you discussed during the webinar. Yes, Um, Drew, would you be interested, could you send me a list of some of the resources that you mentioned in the midst of this webinar? I'll also add to to the list some of the things that I mentioned in the course, and we can send that out via email to all of the people who are registered. Each week, Okay. All right. So make sure that we get that or at the very least, put it in the chat for you during the the subsequent weeks, but we'll send it to you an email this time. Thank you so much. God bless you. Um, We are going to be coming back next week. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Freedom Road Institute for Leadership and Justice is a project of Freedom Road, LLC. Uh, We consult, coach, train and design experiences that bring common understanding common commitment and lead to common action. And the podcast, which this will also appear on the Freedom Road podcast, um, is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this episode is also recorded in partnership with Inverse Podcast. So this will also appear on Inverse Podcast. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. So we ask you to stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. Um, And please listen, listen in to the Freedom Road podcast again next month. It drops around the first day of each month. Um, And so come and join us, join us on Freedom Road and join us in the the Institute where you can have an incredible learning journey. Um, And the one that we're about to embark on, we are embarking on, asking the critical question, where do we go from here? God bless you. Thank you.
0: The Inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com
2: inverse